Your attention, please. Paul and Alex are required to proceed to the gate immediately. What? No way. What is happening here? This is the last call for the Layovers podcast. Really? Come on, man. This is our thing. We got this. Oh, yeah. And we made it. Of course, geeks. Flight 91 to Delhi. Delhi, I can't believe we haven't done Delhi yet. Yeah, we've done Mumbai a while ago, I remember. A long time ago. Yeah, an airport we've both done. Have you ever been to any other airports in India besides now Delhi? No, this was only my second trip to India. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah, I've been to Kochi, which is an airport we have to do once as well, but that's about it. And I've never been to Delhi, so I'd be very curious to hear about your airport experience, because I know a lot mm-hmm. about what happened within Delhi, because you told me a little bit, but not the airports. And Etihad, obviously. We'll talk uh, about that in the end. But first, since we're talking about airports, well, obviously the big one, the crazy project, as Erdogan calls it himself, the new Istanbul airport has opened. Wow, it looks cool. Yeah, it looks spectacular. It really does. I think it was a little bit later than they were hoping for. But you know what? If you can open an airport smoothly a few months after you said you were going to versus opening it on time and everything falling apart, then I think you've probably made a wise choice. Yeah, and also, although you're right, they were slightly late. At the same time, they were so fast into creating that new airport. I mean, they started the project, what, four years ago? And they have the... Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, so having only six months. And they actually opened it for domestic flights in the original date. And now they've transferred. So the transfer must have been also something they they had planned. So it was Saturday. We're recording today, Friday, the 12th of April. And the airport, the old airport, Ataturk, closed down on Saturday morning, last Saturday. I think the last flight was 2 a.m. And they had a window of... If I'm not mistaken, around 40 hours to actually transfer, I think, more than 10,000 pieces of equipment. It's a 30 kilometers ride from one airport to the other because the new one is north of the city. They had 43,000 tons of equipment. They use 686 semi-trailer trucks and hundreds of other vehicles to moving all this equipment at night. And they actually did that with 13 hours to spare. They went faster than the original Bravo. plan. Yeah, so it must have been quite something. I know that uh, your family has been involved in the one in Hong Kong. These these massive movements must be quite something. Yeah, I can't even imagine the planning involved in that. And the fact that they finished with so much time left is really a, a testament to that planning procedure. I like to see these things, but I cannot wrap my head around them, <laughs> the, the planning that must have gone. Do you know what they're going to do with the old airport? Or are they just going to... Yeah, because that's the thing. At some point, they were thinking of keeping it open. They have a third airport. I forgot the name of it, which is on the east side of the Bosphorus. There were rumors at some point that they would like to keep Ataturk open, but apparently the last ever flight was at 2 a.m. And the first flight, that's interesting as well, the first flight with the new airport was at 2 p.m. on that Saturday. So it was landing whilst the whole movement was still going on, apparently. But everything went super smoothly. They're super happy. Both the chairman and the CEO of Turkish were very, very happy about this. Everything went super well. And uh, we have two listeners, actually. We already went there. Obviously, uh, the first one is uh, Mathieu Guillaume-Duluc, who 
probably landed on purpose, of course, <laughs> at uh, Istanbul, because it's going to be called Istanbul Airport IST, hours after it was opened. And he shared some pictures on Instagram. It looks grandiose. The lounge as well looks, uh, you know, the, the Turkish lounge at Ataturk was always a favorite for many people. Uh, not for me, I'll, I'll be very honest, but the new one looks really amazing and I can't wait to, to go there. Also, Matteo, another friend who lives in Milan and uses a lot uh, Turkish, was there like two hours ago and just sent me pictures. Oh, yeah, wow. just sent me pictures of the airport and uh, the Turkish lounge. Like, it looks really, really, really nice. They can be proud. I'm really happy for them. I'm really happy. Well, I'm excited to try yeah, it out. I'm actually planning already. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been to Istanbul in ages. I need to get back there. Yeah, I'm, I'm planning to actually use Turkish from one of my uh, long flights later this year, just because I want to transfer. Because, let's be honest, I always like Turkish. I mean, they have some hiccups with some of their older aircraft. I'm a big fan. They are 777 and they are 330. Not everything else to be be very honest with you but I, I love the service i love the food inside the plane you know they have the kebabs but i was always wary of istanbul airport because it was such a nightmare to transfer i even it's in one of our episodes i even slept one night during a long layover there oh yeah I remember it was a that. catastrophe the hotel within the terminal was super expensive and really not nice so, I, I, yeah, I can't wait because I think Turkish deserves to have a hub like this. And this is a fantastic achievement. Uh, they called this uh, whole movement the Big Bang. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure that was the best use of words, but oh, well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's an interesting, actually, it's also an interesting uh, fight between all these hubs because it clearly now competes with uh, Dubai. Uh, and Dubai, al was supposed to be open much earlier. They've now said that the transfer for Emirates from the current DXB to Al Maktoum won't happen before 2030. Yeah. What? 2030. So that's, you know, 11 years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, same. And um, Al Maktoum will, can handle 130 million passengers, planned to handle up to 260 million passengers, which seems like insane. For reference, Istanbul in its current state, can handle 90 million passengers, but will go up to 200 million within 10 years. 200 million. I mean, how? Uh, <laughs> they have room. You know, they, I, I've looked at the layout of this uh, new airport. It's six times the size of Heathrow. Yeah, they have room, man. Well, exactly. That's the whole thing, isn't it? Is, is there, well, we have room here, too. We just choose to use it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, stuff like uh, the third runway or crossrail takes forever and are delayed forever, right? Yeah. Uh, actually, a very also interesting tidbit in this fight of hubs. Ethiopia, uh, of course, we'll go about Ethiopia later. We have to. But Ethiopia overtook Dubai last year as a conduit for long-haul passengers from into Africa. So, wow. Yeah, it's very interesting. So it's a very, it's a testament to the success of the, the strategy of hub by Ethiopian because more than Dubai, I wasn't expecting that. No, no, neither was I at all because there's so much traffic that flows from Europe and, well, and outside of Europe through Dubai down to Africa. So I'm surprised. And, and, you know, Ethiopian have had this long 
long-term strategy in place to do exactly that. And I'm so glad it's working because they're such a great airline. Yeah, and, and Turkish will want part of that pie for sure because they are mm. very well located for, for Europe. So yeah, and it, it's a great airline. So I'm sure they will fly to more success. I mean, we'll see. We both can't wait to try that airport. So since oh. we are talking about airports, let's stay on airports uh, more. Of course, that's the purpose of this show. So I don't know if Istanbul will ever be named as the best airport, but like clockwork, every year we have the Skytrax Awards. And of course, like clockwork, who won the best airport in the world? Singapore. <laughs> yeah, fair. <laughs> Is that a surprise? Not really. Man, that's also an airport we need to revisit very soon because uh, next month the Jewel opens. Yeah, I was just going to say that this 135,000 square meter complex. So it looks... I mean, only Singapore would do this, right? Or only, actually, I shouldn't even say that. Only Changi would do something like this. It's like, it's like a, uh, not, what are they called? Not an arboretum, that's a, that's trees, but like an indoor jungle almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With a, with a huge waterfall in the middle of it. I think we talked yep. about it when they first released sketches, yep. but now that it's, it exists in the real world. It just looks even more impressive. Yeah, yeah. last time I was there, they were putting the panels, uh, the the windows on top of this uh, round uh, building. I truly can't wait. So next month, uh, I get a, another reason to go back to Singapore. Actually, I know I'm going back to Singapore in the fall, but let's see if I can go before that. Number two, so I'm going to do quickly the rundown. I know we sometimes have reservations of these Skytrax Awards, but they're fun. Number two, uh, you like that Haneda. Number three in Xi'an, then Doha. Hong Kong is number five. Uh, Central Japan, so Nagoya is number six. Have you ever oh, been? No, I haven't. Yeah, me neither, actually. There's one, one other miss in, in Japan. I've done many, many others. Guys, there's many other Japanese airports coming up in this show at some point. Munich, seven. London, Heathrow, it's eighth. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I'll, I'll go to that in a second. Uh, Narita is ninth, and uh, tenth is Zurich, which is my favorite in Europe. Yeah, Ether number eight. And you know what? When I see they're drunk, is that number 12 is Frankfurt. Yeah. <laughs> you see, the thing about Heathrow is that, and perhaps to an extent, Frankfurt, you and I go through those airports so frequently that perhaps we we hold them to higher standards or we notice things that, that people wouldn't otherwise notice if they're just passing through once or twice a year. In fairness, and looking at it objectively, Heathrow isn't that no bad. no no it, I agree. It, it really isn't that bad the only thing that uh well there's a few things that frustrate me getting between terminals is not as easy as in some airports no matter how they yep. try and the delays yep. during certain periods of the day but it's really not that bad i wouldn't transit through it if i had a chance to transit through somewhere like amsterdam or well, basically every other airport in Western Europe, but it's not a bad... No, 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 it's not. And actually, uh, because that's, I think it's the most interesting, the best terminals, because that's exactly the point with Heathrow is that some terminals are better than others. Clearly, Terminal 2 for me is my favorite currently, although there's this unfinished kind of uh, idea of it, because at some point it will extend. However, the number one on that list is Terminal 5, the best terminal in the world, Heathrow Terminal 5. I, I We find it probably cramped, but if I remove that, it's true that it's a pretty 
good terminal. Yeah, it is a good terminal. It flows pretty well and it's spacious. It, is, it does. I don't know about you, but it feels like it's getting crowded. Yeah, it, that's that's the thing. They, they need another terminal. I mean, some the Monday mornings. If you guys ever travel on a Monday morning at at Heathrow Terminal Five, are a disaster in terms of the number of passengers that are transiting. Yeah. But yeah, and but otherwise, I admit it. It's 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 a very nice airport. And you're right. We probably see it so often that we're being a bit harsh uh, for, about it. Mm. The Singapore Shanghai Terminal Three is a second. Munich Terminal Two, obviously, because Munich Terminal One is not that great. London Heathrow Terminal 2 is fourth. Fair. That's a great... I would put that above T5. Me too. And then they put Dubai T3, Shanghai T4... I've never been to Shanghai T4, the new one. Haneda International is seventh. Then Guangzhou T2, Madrid T4. I do not agree with that because you need... <laughs> no, hell no. And then Baku T1. I need to visit that. I need to yeah. do that as well. Uh, I think that's an interesting list. And I'm not sure... Again, we never agree with these in full. Haneda Terminal 1 or International, International Terminal? Yeah. Okay, you know what? With all of the... With all of the features and everything, I think once you get airside, it's yeah nothing to write home about. But landside, yeah, okay, fair. It's pretty flipping yeah, good. Yeah, exactly. So uh, since you're talking about a Japanese airport, a list that you will not have any surprise of Japanese airports stopping it is the world's cleanest airport. Uh, number one, Haneda. Number two, Nagoya. Number three, Shanghai. Then Incheon, Narita, Doha, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Kansai and Zurich, not surprising. Not surprising at all. And I agree with that list. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) The best airport for transit, I'm not going to do all the lists, guys. You can just find them on Skytrax, is uh, Incheon. I do kind of agree. It's very easy to transfer. The best low-cost terminal and the best for baggage reclaim is T2 at Kansai. You've done T2? KIX? No, we did that weird uh, out terminal at Kansai when we landed there. So I I don't think so. I think no. that's D3 there. Yeah, I'm not sure because I've only done the, the big one at KIX. The world's best airport hotel, it's the Crown Plaza at Changi. I'm going to stay there. No, no. And, uh, but number three is a Sofitel at Ethro. Have you ever stayed there? I have. It's connected to T5. It's good. It's very expensive compared to some of the other ones, even even the ones connected by the by the pod to Terminal Five, it's it's very expensive. It's good, but it's an airport hotel. Frankly, I don't want huge amounts of luxuries and amenities because chances are I'm there for the minimum amount yeah. of time I would ever spend <laughs> in, in, in an airport. When we get to Delhi, there's a there's a little cluster of hotels there that uh, that we should talk about because it's uh, an interesting redefinition or calibration of the definition of airport hotel. <laughs> the best airport for shopping is Ethro again, and I think you like this. Uh, the best airport for immigration facilities is Hong Kong. It's pretty fast. Is that the best? Yeah, and with those best. new those new e gates outbound as well, I think the whole process is becoming a lot easier. Yeah. And the best security process, and I fully endorse that, is Zurich. Yeah, I'm. <laughs> how many times have we lauded that? In fact, I'm going through there next month transiting, and it's something like a 48 minute transit. And, and every other airport in the world, I would sweat that, but no, no problems. <laughs> Where to? Uh, you can't recall. Oh, Tel Aviv. <laughs> <laughs> and. Last but not least, because that's probably your favorite list, the best dining. Number one, Hong Kong. Uh, okay, yep, I, <laughs> I believe it. There was, again, I, I, have I been through since they... Uh, I don't think I've been through since they, they kind of shredded everything to, to, to expand. But 
I'm not so sure about that because when they replaced everything, they replaced it with the standard hodgepodge that you can find in every other. I think I bitched about this in another episode. <laughs> Pre-security again, it's not bad, but I just wish they wouldn't do that. Uh, number two, Narita, then Shangi, Incheon, Houston, George Bush is number five. For once, we have Haven't we have there. an American airport in this list because they're rare. Doha six, Ether seven, Rome Fiumicino is eighth, Munich is ninth, and Amsterdam is tenth. The airport where you had a uh, trouble to find actually good food, so I'm not sure about honestly this best dining option. But yeah, I don't know if I if I had trouble, I was just sort of perhaps looking for something that didn't exist, <laughs> which is spectacular airport food. <laughs> so guys, if you've ever eaten spectacular airport food, please reach out to us because we need to find a most spectacular. It's true that I don't think I have one airport that I can single out of. I mean, obviously Narita and Haneda because you'll have great Japanese food in these fake Edo villages. Yes. Uh, but besides yes. besides that, I don't, I'm not sure. And maybe we're too often in lounges as well. So uh, Mathieu Guillaume-Dulic was uh, transiting at uh, Istanbul. I think he's transiting back uh, soon, uh, going to a trip that I really want to do because it's on the top of my list of trips to do this year. He went to Georgia. And uh, uh. talking about Georgia, I don't know if any of you guys is uh, watching the Grand Tour on Amazon Prime, you know, the successor of Top Gear, if you want, with Crocs and Hammond and May. We're not here to talk about cars. I'm not a big car guy myself, but there was episode, I think, 12 of this current season. If you have Amazon Prime, I encourage you to watch it because they did a, a segment in Stansted here in London, and it was absolutely hilarious because these guys, it was only on this segment, uh, Clarkson and Hammond went on a rant about what it is to travel. I have, by the way, a hunch that they do not use usually Stansted to do their travels. But they probably had authorization to film there. <laughs> yes, I would imagine that that was, that was the case. But it's funny because the rant about the fact that, uh, why do I need to be two hours before a flight where the only thing my luggage does is going from here, the checking desk, to the wall behind there, and he chose the wall. And it's true. Or like, is anyone ever been at gate A1? We always have to walk like five miles to get to our gates. And yeah, well, it's true. He actually says the distance from the backdrop here to the gate we're going to is 1.2 kilometers. And in Atlanta, the walk to the furthest gate is two kilometers. In Beijing, it's two miles. And the what you think about that is <laughs> it's actually, he's actually correct. Sometimes we seem to be walking absolutely uh, forever. He also has a super rent about uh, security. The shopping thing is actually the, the, the best one. What do they think when you get to an airport that you're overcome with a need to smell like Victoria Beckham? What do they all want you to sell you perfume? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is true. And I think I think that there's some reason. I think it obviously it makes them a lot of money. But yeah, you're right. You go through the... That's what kills me about duty-free. You go any airport in the world. It's like, it's all the same all crap. <laughs> exactly. You know? Absolutely. And Clarkson adds, I am going to start on an airline called I'll Take My Chances Air. You turn up, get on the plane, it takes off. Nobody on board smells like Victoria Beckham. No security, nothing. If it blows up, it blows up. Not that you can say blows up in an airport these days because then you have to go to prison for 400 years. <laughs> I loved it. Yeah, he, he, he doesn't hold back with it. Yeah, opinion. but that was really fun. And then they went on creating a, a fun segment when Hammond created a skateboard. It was a laptop on wheels. His way of going faster for these miles to walk and security and everything. And... 
Clarkson had a carry-on that doubled as a little car. So he was sitting on it with a little wheel to direct it. And they did like a race with its stanced uh, terminal. It was really, really, really fun. Honestly, watch it, even if you're not a car guy. And to be frank, one other thing that they do very well, again, put the cars aside if you're not a car person. They go, this season they went to, I think, Colombia. It was absolutely magnificent. They went to Georgia. They went to Azerbaijan. The episode in China was also very notable. The last one was in Mongolia, the episode 13. They have these grandiose travelogues. And even if you don't like cars, the, the sceneries are absolutely fantastic. Yeah, they, they do have some amazing cinematography. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely amazing. And talking about amazing cinematography, uh, congratulations on your Fuji episode for Attaché. It's fantastic. Thank you. That's very kind of you to say. Yeah, it was a fun episode to yeah. make. It's such a beautiful part of the world. Yeah, it is. I mean, I think our, our, our listeners are getting the grip now that we both love Japan so much, but <laughs> this yeah. this was... Uh, because again, for those who watch Attaché, it's one of these episodes like Beirut, like a few others, are not exactly your usual episodes and they, they play very well. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was. it's such a great part and it meant that we got to fly on some very interesting routes and uh, out of some very interesting airports as well just to to put the cherry on, on the cake. Yeah, all these airports are on the list, guys. But we're trying to balance. Otherwise, I think we could do eight episodes in a row in Japan, if I look at the list of airports that uh, we could do in Japan that we haven't covered yet. So there's a lot, actually. So watch it, guys. It's on YouTube, Attaché, Attaché Travel from uh, my dear Alex. So Stan said he's not really known for traveling in class, although Emirates flies its uh, 777 with a new first class from there, duh, and not from anywhere else in, in London. But uh, I flew, as I told you guys, I flew a BA first for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The Crown First Class sleeper seats. No, that was in 1981. <laughs> when I was researching about, you know, their product, I, I found that they used to call that Crown First Class. Wow, that's um, really uh, passe, these types of names. Anyway, <laughs> since we're talking first, a few tidbits interesting about uh, the First Class itself. In 2008, BA had around a 560,000 First Class seats across its fleet. Now it has a uh, hundred thousand less, so first class is disappearing. And other examples, uh, same timeline. Delta had four hundred thousand. Now they only have half of that. Uh, United had uh, three hundred and eighty thousand. Now they have a hundred eighty thousand. So also they halved it. Singapore went from one hundred fifty to ninety thousand. So everybody is having the only company, and I just mentioned it that did the opposite is obviously Emirates. <laughs> yeah, of course. But they're growing as an airline. They went from 310,000 to 600,000 first-class seats across the Earth. Six, Jeez, six, Louise. That's a lot. Good wow. opportunities to get upgraded. Uh, although they haven't upgraded me in a long time. I don't fly them enough anymore, I guess. Anyway, so I flew both the 787 and the 777. So on the way there, it was a Dreamliner. On the way back, it was a 777. But first, I think you've flown BA first a few times. Yeah, I've done it, but only I've never done it on either of those planes. I've only done it on the 747 and the 380. Okay, okay. So on the 777, the product that is there dates from 2010. So it has around 10 years now. They had spent, I think back then, like a hundred million pounds to, to make these new first class cabins with uh, what you've had probably as well, which is these um, two or three windows blinds. Inside. With, with this blue hue thing. Interestingly, on the Dreamliner, which is a product that dates from 2015, it's a newer, different product. They have the dimming, 
and I've never seen that before, they have a single button to dim both windows. Oh, I've never so seen that. I'm pretty sure that they had to order that specifically. They had to tell Boeing, do not put the button on the second window uh, further ahead. Just put it on one and make not it uh, work for the two. So it, it was, that was interesting. Wow, that's cool. It's only on the Dreamliner Dash 9. Obviously, the Dash 8 doesn't have a first class if you were to travel BA and wanted to try the first class. In both cases, I had a new food menu. They just introduced it. It's, it's really nice. I'll get to that in a minute. And also had the new amenity kits done by Tempele. I, I, I didn't know that brand before. I was going to say, I don't think I'm familiar no. with them, but I'm not exactly the target demographic for luxury brands. <laughs> no, exactly, same here. The amenity kit is pretty fine. Is it to the quality of some of the other first class we've both done? I'm not entirely sure, but it, it's good. The, the pajamas is notable. It's really nice. Everything is branded first, BA first on it. It looks really nice with some little leather touches. The slippers are notable to being very comfortable as well. I really love, however, how they introduced me the pyjama. She comes to me and she says, uh, would you like some loungewear? And for a second, I was, I was like, what is she? I had a flashback to Roger Moore in The Persuaders. If you don't know that TV show with... Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, like, because it's one of my favorite TV show ever with... Um, what was his name? The American actor, Tony... Uh, never mind. They play out each other, you know, the American versus the Brit. And when Roger Moore is inside, he has like some different type of suit, you know, the suit you only wear inside. And I was like, is BA going to offer me like some kind of very fancy suit? Because loungewear... No, it was only the pajama, right? <laughs> it does sound like crushed velvet smoking jackets, doesn't it? There was a little bit of velvet actually on it. It's black. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's black. Uh, no, it's really nice. And you can, which I really appreciate because... Uh, I have a weird body, you can uh, mismatch the size of the top and the bottom. So I'm a medium when it comes to the top, or sometimes large, but they tend to give me X large and I float in them because I'm rather yeah. thin. But because I'm really tall, if you give me a medium or sometimes even a large as trousers, pants, then they're way too short. <laughs> so I really appreciated that I could actually play out these two. That's <laughs> nice. a nice, nice, nice touch. Honestly, the, the crew on both were really, really good. Uh, notably, Lewis on the way there uh, with the Dreamliner and Lisa on the way back. They were both Excellent, absolutely excellent. We said that oftentimes. BA crew makes it all. Obviously, in first class, you can expect that they would be good. Have you had good experiences with your BA first class crew? Always. No, <laughs> ever. What? Not really? Uh, they've been universally terrible. Oh my God, really? Actually, no, I lie. Once. Once on my very first time when I flew from London to Miami, they were outstanding. But remember, this was uh, when... I had the person, I think she'd never really worked. I think she was feeling in. It was during some of the strikes and she she struggled. Like she didn't know what an Americano was. <laughs> and uh, it was a very strange. And then the other time was in the A380 coming back from Chicago. And that was when all of the uh, packaging for the the bedding was flung into oh, yeah. the galley while I was standing there. There was a <laughs> litany of like, really? I think we can do better than this. <laughs> So no, mine were, were were good. Whether up to Singapore, I don't know, but they were actually good. There was one, actually, since you mentioned, there was one clearly, the Dreamliner, one of the crew, that was clearly our first time in a Dreamliner. So clearly she had some difficulty finding the stuff in the galley. So she was a bit slow. But what she was really good at is she acknowledged it directly to me. I didn't really realize, you know, if I have to wait 60 seconds instead of 30 seconds, I wouldn't really realize it. But she acknowledged it and right. played it. And played it in a 
fun way that made it endearing and I was more empathizing than than anything else and actually we made it a game throughout the flight and it was all fine so that that was very clever she she was an older lady so she probably knew how to play the passenger but it was really clever how she did it to to make it a almost like an advantage of like like oops I don't know where all this stuff is because it's completely reshuffled in the Dreamliner compared to the 777 it was like okay fine yeah. <laughs> and I, I again I still don't claim to understand how any of it works but generally I find the cabin crew experiences on the Dreamliners and the 777s so much better than on the AF380 and the 747 is a mixed bag but there's definitely something there. It's consistently, it's noticeable in its consistency. I was talking, since you mentioned, I was talking to one of the crew because, you know, th- these are short flights, uh, four hours, you don't want to sleep. It's really nice to actually have a first class of four hours. You'd like, why? But I mean, probably Moscow has the the, the passengers mm-hmm. who pay for that. It's super interesting. The 777, 200, 300 and the Dreamliner are considered the same class of qualification for crew. So if you qualify for a 777-300, you can also work in a Dreamliner. Wow. Then another qualification is obviously 319, 320, 321. And then that leaves the 747 or the 380. And crew cannot hold more than three qualifications, which most of the time means that you'll have a crew that has, let's say, 320 series, 777 and 747, or 320 series, 777 and Dreamliner as well as included, and 380. So the bit that will change will be the 747 or 380. They cannot hold more than three qualifications. Very interesting tidbit. That is interesting. Wow. Okay. It. But it's strange that a Dreamliner would be considered as a 777, but probably because they're close enough, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I wonder if that was done on purpose by Boeing to make it so that, I guess, just remove one less barrier to, to airlines adopting the Dreamliner when it came out saying, you know, your crews that are already on the 777, they don't have to do much at all, if anything, to to familiarize themselves and be legal to work on. Yeah. There was no mark in the flight deck, sadly, when I went there, because <laughs> the first thing I went, actually went to the flight deck, I kind of picked in and like, no, it was not there too bad. He wrote me back on Twitter saying, sorry, but next time. But fantastic as well. They came out to say hello as well. That was really nice. As, as well on the 777, the co-pilot on the 777 felt like he was like 18 or something, but he was super cool. We talked about where he was going next. He was going to Bahrain, actually, with that new rat dude that goes to Daman. Oh, Daman. Yeah, <laughs> Sounds yeah. fantastic. Anyway, so the seat itself. So you've experienced it on different products. So I'm going to start with a 777 because it's the older. It's it's really nice. It's really big. There's a lot of room. Yeah, this weird console on your left, if you're on, your, on the left side of the aircraft, and I guess on your right. The center seats are slightly different. Even still has, okay, 2010, but still has the RCA jacks, <laughs> which... That's funny, yeah. isn't it? One thing I didn't really like about this seat is there's not a lot of storage. Of course, you have your own overhead bin, but there's almost no storage. You can see that it was like almost pre-iPhone era because you don't know where to put it. There's no place to, you know, when you you take off, there's no cupboard, whatever, to put it. You have to keep it in your hand. I wonder if it's the same layout as the 747. Probably. I haven't looked at the pictures. So then, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. There's nowhere to put it. Yeah, exactly. So that's probably exactly. There's stuff to hang one suit or coat. Like that weird cabinet. Yes. But yeah, you're right. That's, a that's good clever, point. actually. The cabinet, you can you can put your coat and under it, there's a little bulge and you can actually hide your shoes as well within that cabinet. But that's pretty much it. There's really no other room. Yeah. But yeah, it's really, really solid. And there's this round button to move the seat. 
Clockwise, it goes down and anti-clockwise, it goes up. Okay, it's pretty straightforward. I'm going to make an analogy, which is a bit stupid. I said I don't like cars, but let's still say I used to have a Jaguar XF. Jaguar XF, the central command is a button and you can, it's an automatic car and you simply turn it to put on drive or one, two, you know, the usual thing you have on automatic cars. And that's as straightforward as it is on the 777. It's understandable. I, I'm not a big fan of this button, but it works. On the Dreamliner... They iterated on that, and it's a new uh, button. It's also round. Uh, remember, guys, I flew the Dreamliner first. I also had another car, which was a BMW in the past, and BMW also is very famous for having a set. Yeah, the iDrive. Yeah, Isn't yeah. the iDrive on the BMW? And on the early models, it was a mess of UI. That's exactly what the Dreamliner is. I couldn't understand what the button was doing because... There were like lots of logos around it, four logos uh, on each side, iconography, and it wasn't clear what they were doing. I was like, so one clearly was supposed to put you in lie flat, one was supposed to move your headrest, the other one's supposed probably to move your armrests. So you had to first select what you wanted to move and then turn the button. Whereas on the 777 is simply one button you turn and you see it moves. And honestly, we're not stupid. We dab with technology every day. It took me five minutes to understand the Dreamliner button. I was like, this is over-engineered just for the sake of yeah. over-engineering. It's just... But, I mean, it's still fine. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm quibbling right there. The good thing on the Dreamliner seat, tons and tons and tons of storage. You learned a lesson. It's less large because probably the cabin is simply less large. But, man, there's, like, storage everywhere. Like, it seems like everything can yeah. open and you can put your stuff anywhere. You have, like, a thing for your shoes on your side and then one box there, another box. And you have a dedicated box for electronics because when you open that one, you have all the plugs and sockets and anything you want. And then you can... And close it so you can like to charge your phone close it and it's safe yep. there it's super well done man same as the as the 380 there's so much storage okay, probably it's the same then it's so you've, you've we've done both the same product really 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 smart i really enjoyed that one actually it's less grandiose because the screen doesn't move it stays in front of you it gives this impression of having a cubicle for your feet although again there's a lot of room whereas on the 777 and probably on the 747 since the screen swivels when it's closed it feels like you have like this massive lounge in front of you and you're like where do i put my feet i have so much choice here the ottoman can move and whatever so i mean honestly yeah they are both great products but the one thing and that's the only one thing that maddened me under Dreamliner. The seat was just a minor quibble. This round button seat it was the IFE, man. The IFE. <sighs> Over-engineering again. So on the 777, you have this old remote control on your side. And, you know, you have buttons. And it dates back like 10 years. But it works. You press play and it plays. And you press stop and the movie stops and pauses and whatever. What it's supposed to be doing. On the Dreamliner, they went from this super fancy, you know, touch control thing, which probably is Android-fueled or whatever. Yeah. It is a disaster. Nothing responds. And strangely, although the screen on the Dreamliner doesn't move, okay, it's a bit further, but it's not touch screens. Your only way to control the thing is the remote control. Well, the 777, you can touch the screen in front of you. Man, that thing, every time she was coming or he was coming to give me something and I wanted to interrupt the movie, the movie wouldn't stop. Then I was trying to put it, you know, uh, a few seconds back 
the movie start from the beginning or the menu would go like, oh, let's watch another movie or, oh, do you want to listen to radio? And I was like, what is going on here? <laughs> That's infuriating. Over, over-engineering. Again, guys, I know, you know, it's first class. I'm not here to complain. I'm just saying over-engineering, you know, sometimes just put like five buttons. It works. Don't over-engineer the stuff, man. I mean, yeah. No, well, that's what drives me cuckoo bananas on some of these. Yeah. I just don't understand taking away the touchscreen. Um, I'm very sure they had a reason. I just don't, I can't think of it myself. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not calibrated. You know, you press, you have little buttons and you press, let's say, stop, like you would do on an iPhone or a modern Android phone. And when you touch it, you touch like five centimeters on the side. So he presses like, I don't know, like radio. That's that's why. I was like, oh my God, it's infuriating. I mean, anyway, over-engineer. Hey, not a big deal, but guys, be a, forget about putting a door in first class. Just fix your IFE and you'll be fine. Because honestly, it's really yeah. private. Yeah, that's what's nice about it. I think that an IFE... IFE is uh, is something they can do. I, well, I'm I'm sure I'm oversimplifying this. Reasonably easy compared to overhauling a physical product. If they've got the physical product right, which it sounds like in your opinion they yes. have largely, yes. one would hope that they could tweak the IFE. But then again, if it's a touchscreen versus not touchscreen, that might be a little yeah, bit more yeah. uh, and, uh, of, a, of an investment. Uh, funnily, it never happened to me in a flight, but I'm sure it had happened to a lot of listeners. Maybe you. Um, I was watching a movie, Vice, a really cool movie, actually. Oh, yeah, that's funny. I watched that on my Etihad flight. <laughs> Warning, contains an aircraft in distress. Viewer discretion is advised. That was what I had before starting that movie. The only thing is that, I mean, of course, there's a mention of a 9-11 at the beginning, but there's no freaking aircraft in distress the whole movie. I couldn't get it. <laughs> that's what I was saying. I was like, I was racking my brain while you were saying that, going, when is that? <laughs> it's so seat like that. <laughs> oh, you know what it is? It's the, I know exactly what it is. It's the archive news footage of 9-11. Probably that. Yeah, you're right. Probably that. Actually, once I had not that actual thing in the front, it was not PA, World War Z with Brad Pitt, when there's a big scene in an aircraft trying to escape the zombies, that was edited out of the movie. The movie made no sense anymore. Wow, that's odd. <laughs> that's always... Anyway, but I mean, you know what? When I saw that warning, I was like, oh, I want to watch it even more, actually, now that you told me that. Uh, an aircraft in distress, really? <laughs> food, F&B, food and beverages. First, beverages, they have a new list. Sadly, they haven't changed the champagne. The champagne is okay, but to me, it's not. Uh, it's a champagne you can buy for like $10 in shops. So for me, it's not that great. But man, holy moly, the size of the glasses they serve you. I mean, do you want to empty half of the bottle in my glass or something? <laughs> yeah, they've always been like that, especially in first with the with the wine. These like, glasses are massive. Like okay, wow. What? Uh, what? Who do you think I am, or what kind of person? Do you exactly, think I am? especially because because it was my first time in first in BA on the way to Moscow. It was eight thirty a.m. They want some champagne. I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna have a sip because you know I told him it's my first time. And you bring me this huge glass. Like I had like half a liter of champagne. I was like, what the heck? My God! I mean, it's generous, I guess, but I mean, no. I mean, man. I mean, that was the. I, I didn't. I couldn't finish that one. I mean, it was eight thirty for crying out loud. Uh, the food, the food on the way back, fantastic. I had a tuna tataki and then the sea bass. Honestly, really excellent food. Fantastic quality. On the way there, uh, it was breakfast, as I said, uh, notwithstanding the champagne. Wow. Uh, you know, it, it, it was the same type of uh, breakfast that you can have in business class, which is your full English, just bigger, more stuff. 
I, I, maybe just because I'm not a full English guy, but it was okay. But I was like, I was not yeah. wowed by the breakfast. Yeah, I, breakfast on airplanes is generally pretty horrendous unless you're flying Emirates on an Asian airline or yeah, or Middle Eastern where breakfast is just completely different yeah. anyway. Yeah, but I mean, again, quibbles. It's fantastic experience. I don't think they really need to change the seat after revealing the new business class. I mean, they probably will, but. As it stands, it's a fantastic product. I mean, it's way too expensive because uh, everything from London is expensive. So, uh, no, I wouldn't pay for that. But fantastic product. I loved it a lot. But again, the crew. The crew made, for me, thank God, made, because apparently not for you, made a, quite a quite a big difference to, to do this whole thing. So, very lucky. Maybe they just don't like it. <laughs> no, come on. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> One more thing, like they do with Apple keynotes, at least Steve Jobs used to do. <laughs> the uh, the Dreamliner uh, just came out of maintenance when I had it. Because of that, we had a delay of 35 minutes. So we were in the aircraft. It was not a P announcement, but the head of customer service, I don't know how they call it, the pursuer, the, the head of cabin. Oh, cabin service Cabin manager. service manager, probably. Yes, thank you. I'm really bad at remembering these titles. And came to me and says, yeah, it just came out like literally this morning. So the pilots need a little bit more time. And I was like, oh, you know what? I'm, you know, I'm in first class. Like, Please take five hours if you want on the ground. I'm, as long as I'm seated here and I've got some yeah. food, I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> the little stories I told you about where all the sockets are and where you can put your stuff was blocked. And uh, the, <laughs> he, he tried to helped me opening it and for the best of 15 minutes we couldn't open it and i was like so it just came out of maintenance anyway <laughs> you know it's interesting on the basource.com you can see what type of maintenance it was in oh. for and how long it was in oh, for. oh wow yeah which is it's, it's just kind of interesting it's an interesting route to go to to moscow because as i think as we hinted before we, you can also fly there with uh, 321 with the life flight to the xbmi seats which i've yeah i've done i like that actually the same the same head of cabin told me uh we were discussing about aircraft, uh, and the guy was like, oh, yeah, the 321 BMI, it's an air mattress. These things feel like my childhood. <laughs> oh, that's nice. <laughs> anyway, uh, DME, we covered it. Uh, Domedevo Airport, we covered it. It seems to be eternally in construction forever. It's actually that list I just mentioned earlier. It stands at number 80, so it's not very high in the very good airports. Immigration, man, is a bit better. They're a bit nicer than before. The one thing that is really fun that I didn't realize. Did you know that Russia has a ban? They've made many bans on European products. It's a bit of a retaliation against some of the sanctions. One of the ban is they do not allow any cheese to be imported in Russia. All the big cheeses are not found in the big department stores in Russia, like Goom, the, the very famous one on the Red Square. You cannot find cheese in European cheese. That's weird. So it means <laughs> a lot of the passengers buy cheese and put them in their luggage. The luggage belts coming from Europe are filled with a smell of cheese. If you put your luggage in the hold, to Moscow from Europe, chances are your luggage will smell of cheese. <laughs> amazing. I mean, not amazing, but hilarious. That is absolutely, absolutely fantastic. On the way back, DME uh, immigration was a bit harsher. She literally took 15 minutes to actually check my passport. They really literally go with 
the magnifying glass on every page. They really do. Then the, you know, these blue light and then the scanning and then again the magnifying glass and then the blue light and the scanning. I was like, I'm just going out of the country. So maybe, you know, making sure I'm not escaping something or whatever. But I mean, yeah. But I, I had the, the fast track this time, which I didn't have last time. So it's a separate security, which seemed to be more lenient to some of the rules because I had these massive boots on me. And I was obviously removing them. And she looks at me and says, no, you don't need to. I'm like, yeah, I mean, clearly I need to because these things literally put the bell on every airport in the world. Right, she was like, right. ah, whatever. So it was really kind of really laid back. And I, the good thing is then you have your own private immigration booth as well, separate from everything else. So that, that was actually very fast. The BA lounge, in which I had never done because I didn't fly BA last time, the BA lounge in, uh, in a DME is called a Navigator. It's a third-party contract lounge. Yep. It's, uh, honestly. Yeah. It's, uh, I don't know what it was like when you were there, but there was the view directly out of the window was a construction Still. site. <laughs> but Still. that said, if you, uh, if you peek around the corner, you look out to this sort of temporary graveyard, Airplane graveyard, I hasten yes. to add. Not yeah, before, yeah, which is kind of cool. There's a lot of interesting, interesting places. Yeah, that's there. exactly what I did because there's a single seat next to the windows where you have your view next to a pillar, and that pillar has power because there's no power in that lounge. So that's the best seat to choose. Come early, and then you'll have both the view and power. We must have sat in the same seat. Then. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> Talking about lounges, did you know that American Express uh, acquired Lounge Buddy? I did. I just saw that. And that's great. Lounge Buddy have been uh, at it for years and I've slowly built up something very, very useful indeed. Uh, not it started as kind of a lounge guide and then you could buy lounge access through them. And, and this makes sense for everybody. I'm delighted for them. And I think it's a great acquisition for American Express. Yeah, it was already integrated in the Amex app, at least the UK one, probably the US as well. So you, you could already see the integration was like, say, powered by LaunchBuddy. So I guess it was kind of natural. Mm. The big question is, will LaunchBuddy stay fully independent? As Will you be able to buy lounge access even though you're not an American Express card holder? That question remains open. But more interestingly for me and you, because we both are Amex card holders, Will will be able to maybe access some of those lounges, better access to some of the lounges that uh, Lounge Buddy had access to. That's my thinking. I would hope so. There's a lot of lounges that are sometimes just twenty bucks. I would consider if you know Amex tells me you know you have like a fifty percent rebate on that lounge because you're an Amex card holder and you Lounge Buddy whatever. I would consider it. Yeah. 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 So you have to be rich to fly first class, but sometimes people are even richer than that. And uh, I don't know if you've read the story. I found it completely baffling, and it's still on BA. Nigeria Minister of Agriculture (laughs) said last week that wealthy citizens of Nigeria were ordering pizzas from London and flying them on BA flights to Lagos. I'm not kidding. (laughs) I have so many questions. (laughs) So... So they buy in London, they bring it to British Airways in the morning, and they pick them up at the airport. There was one uh, I just saw on Twitter, one person I uh, verified accounts, probably someone known, Amara Gwampa. Dear British Airways, how come you didn't tell us you run a pizza delivery service in Nigeria? Is there an app for this? <laughs> <laughs> 
Man, man, I, I, but the state of the pizza after so many hours? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. It would be horrendous. I mean, we both like pizza, but this, I'm, I'm not sure. So, I said in the last episode that on April the 8th, Virgin Atlantic would unveil their new A350 upper class. It's done. What do you think? I like it. I think it's nothing revolutionary by any stretch of the imagination. And that's a little disappointing to me because... Virgin Atlantic's last premium product refresh was not refresh. That's not fair. Evolution was the upper class suite, which was absolutely revolutionary. There was nothing like it anywhere in the world because they built it from scratch, much like we said in the last episode about yeah, the BA yeah. one. But I think it's gone back to what differentiated Virgin in the first place, which was a sense of personality, a sense of kind of experience as opposed to a physical hard product. And that that was sensible because they just don't have the money to do like gold plated showers in the in the bathroom or anything like that. But crafting an entire experience from lounge on board. And so you feel like, wow, this is this is different because of the colors and the textures and the type of music that's playing. And then. This just plays into it because I think for like 10 years, it just sort of felt very samey and tired. So this was a this was a good evolution. I'm sad that they removed the bar because that was a, a Virgin Atlantic uh, staple. Sort of staple. That was the one thing that they differentiated themselves with. But they've replaced it with, what do they the call loft. it? The loft, which is this lounge area. Very reminiscent of uh, Etihad, actually. Of Etihad, yeah. And it, it looks great. It's similar to some of the spaces in the upper-class lounge in, in Heathrow. I think it's good. I think it's definitely not revolutionary, but it's it's a step in the right direction for Atlantic. And I have to say, with the rest of the cabin looking as smart as it does, and with a smaller fleet, I'm very likely to try this. Uh, very likely to go out of my way to try this, because I think it looks it looks good. As I am with the with the new BA, but that's going to be much much harder. Yeah, the so the I think they ordered twelve three fifties one thousand to replace uh, actually the seven four sevens. Why? Uh, <laughs> I've never flown Virgin, so my 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 impressions are only from what I'm seeing the pictures. Uh, I agree with you that the. The coloring, I mean, this has always been a bit the thing, you know, BA's coloring, where we talked about the BA club suite, you know, it's always this kind of dark colors, very subtle, kind of, you know, I, I kind of find that the term I'm looking for, something that kind of feels confident, but not over the top. And Virgin has always been more playful, you know, like uh, there's a bit of orange and I don't, it's not pink, but turquoise. I mean, it, it feels more lively, let's say, the colors at Virgin for me, uh, again, as an outsider. And I, I, I really like, I mean, they're only pictures for me, so I cannot judge about the actual experience, but it's true that it conveys a sense of more playfulness, more warmth, probably than BA, clearly. And I appreciate that. The seat itself, I mean, it's uh, well, it's probably a serious seat. At first, I thought it was also the Super Diamond, the same seat that BA introduced uh, two weeks ago. But it's, I think, it's very similar. They, they, so they reversed it. They were on Herringbone. Now they went on Reverse Herringbone, like pretty much everyone else in the industry. They, I was a bit, you know... I was laughing a little bit at the PR release, the press release they made, because some of the stuff, like, uh, they, they said that, oh, our walls are now higher than before. I'm like, yeah, like pretty much anyone else in the industry, Fly Air France yeah, or Cathay but... or whoever has been having higher walls than before. Obviously, the walls before were pretty low. But the good thing, though, because, again, and I've never flown uh, Virgin, the good thing is a lot of people were complaining about putting the seat. You had to stand up 
moved uh, the thing around and then it became a seat. So now it's like more traditional. You press a button and it goes into lie flat, basically, which... Yeah, it would fold yeah. back on Which is a bit like Singapore uh, does as well, right? The big ones in Singapore, yeah. you have to stand up, it falls back. And that was, you know... People didn't especially like it. But I mean, it was a product for what, 2003, probably? The last one? Oh, if, yeah, if not. Yeah, so, uh, so it looks great. There's no. <laughs> there's no door. And I guess because BHS had introduced the door, there's half a door. So it's a bit like Etihad Studio. And there's another airline, I think, that does that. So you can push the privacy shield a little bit further to have a little bit more privacy but it's not it's a half door let's put that that way it's a it's a, it's a half door but what i really really uh <laughs> i mean i was laughing at because it was like so much bs from pr it was like to maintain a connection between passengers and crew throughout the flight no it's not you just decided to have a privacy shield it's fine no, just it, don't don't overspin it it's fine <laughs> yeah don't don't, don't exactly. <laughs> it's okay <laughs> Uh, yeah, and the loft looks great. It sits between upper class and premium economy. There's a massive 32-inch uh, uh, HD screen. I'm always wondering, have you seen, for instance, Etihad, have you seen actually people stay? I mean, uh, on the bar, and not the Virgin one because it's never been, but the bar in Emirates, you have people hanging out because it's made, you have an interaction with the crew, you have someone who's always like serving you drinks or food and whatever. In these lounges, maybe with a family, but would you, would you? I don't know. No, Every time I walk through the, because you walk through the lounge on Etihad, as you say, to get to your seat in business, I go, oh, I need to go and, I need to go and, you know, spend some time there. And then I never yeah. do. But with Emirates at the back, I don't, what, what's the difference? Is it, I think the Emirates one feels much more open, much more open. Maybe. And I like, I like just going there. There's a combination of the standing space with the bar, which again, I think. Yeah, the, the standing space is, exactly. And there's someone to talk to because we fly alone most of the time. So when I'm in Emirates, yeah. when I'm in these super long, I don't know, 10, 12 hours flight with them, you know, it's someone just, just to talk to for five minutes. You talk to a crew about everything and nothing, and you have an interaction. If you're lunch, because I, yeah. last time, when was it? When I was in Etihad, uh, probably to Australia or something, I stood in the lounge for five minutes to test it out. But after three minutes, I was by myself. You just kept yeah, and I was yeah. like, okay, I'm as comfortable in my super comfortable seat. Why would I stay here by myself, right? Yeah. And watching a screen that basically is the moving map that I have in front of me. So unless I fly with a party, because maybe I want to talk to you, Alex, because otherwise we're like secluded in our solo seats, but I don't really see, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's nice. I'm not saying, but I agree with you. The bar is better. And I've never flown Virgin and I'm sad that they're removing the bar because I think it's a, it's, it's a better proposition overall. Yeah. And I don't know if they'll, what the plan to retrofit the cabin to other, with a product because the product extends throughout the airplane. They've got new premium. Yeah. I was about to get there. It's already very good and economy seats, but I don't, I don't know. I don't know how long that's going to take. So there are airplanes with bars in them still, yeah, but course. you're then with the older product. Yeah, it's um, no, but it's looks great. Uh, gives this warm ambiance if you want. Yeah, claret, claret was I think it was a color I was looking for that color, which is you know a kind of purple-ish thing. It's really, really no, really honestly, really nice. And because I know you've been a Virgin guy uh, in your professional career as well, I mean, I, I really want to try them. It's very appealing. And you're right. They also have introduced, and that's different from BA, they've introduced like everything new. Also, premium economy. Premium economy looks actually pretty good. They already have, like you said, a very good premium economy. The new one will have, I think, 38 inches of pitch and recline up to 7 inches, which is really solid. It's uh, 242, I think. The screen is pretty big as well, 13 
more than 13 inches, the IFV screen, and you can control it with your, I think, with your phone, which is, no, it, it looks like a very good product. And even economy, honestly, looks uh, not bad. They have these, um, the Recaro seats, you know, these very thin seats that uh, mm -hmm. allow for more legroom, actually. I think it's 32 or 31 inches, which is uh, almost sadly the, 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 I know, that, the standard the, now, but... Like but yeah, because yeah. the seats are, are narrow, are like a thin, it's more okay, I guess. Uh, no, it's, it seems to be a good product all throughout. So it's going to be appearing soon. And the one thing also that they are doing, they're having new flying icons painted in front of the the hull. Yeah, that's true. They had for the longest time, and it's, it's sort of very reminiscent of the early days of flying and, of course, of maritime yes. tradition of ships where you would have a, a figurehead on the front. And for the longest time, they had, I can't remember what they called it, but it was based on Richard Branson's mother. No way. The, I didn't know yep, that. that was the, yeah, that was based on Richard Branson's mother. Oh, wow. So, and now they are wow. uh, augmenting it on this new fleet with all kinds of, of different people from all walks of life. It's great. It's a it's a nice again a differentiator for 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 Virgin Atlantic as a brand. Yeah, and they are uh, going very twenty uh, first century as well because instead of having only flying ladies, they also will have flying men. I think there's going to be five. So the, they're going to be rolled out with each a new three fifty. They're not going to repaint. The current fleet. So the current fleet will have their current uh, flying ladies. It's a nice touch. It's a great idea. It's a great idea. I'm glad they're not repainting because Virgin seemed to get through sort of two thirds of the fleet and then they changed the livery again. So there's, you go to Heathrow and you look at and you see like three or four different paint schemes for for Virgin and Atlantic, which is a, a bit silly. <laughs> By the way, uh, since I was mentioning in the last episode, uh, the BA Club Suite, and that the first 350 as well will be flying to Toronto after the test flights to Madrid. And I told you, Alex, yeah, that's a great uh, idea for you to do a Toronto episode of Attaché. Go to Toronto. Well, actually, do not go until that's released because I've learned the other day that currently on the Toronto route, they're flying Air Belgium, the old 340 that is completely crap. You know what's funny? <laughs> Two things. I am going to Toronto <laughs> before then, but I'm not flying on BA because I'm going via New York on American. But I have had a few friends that have flown on Air Belgium and have been impressed. No way. Okay, so... Uh... Yeah. In fact, Sam Chewy did an, a video on it as well, and he said it was it was fine. It was good. Okay, so I'm, uh, I rescind what I said. Uh, I... I remember reading some stuff about Air Belgium. Maybe, you know, maybe it was it was actually Air Belgium, not when it was these leases, Air Belgium run for BA, for instance. So I, yeah, okay. So I rescind what I said. We'll, we'll see. see. Maybe I'll go out of my way. When, when are you going to Toronto? June. So too soon, unfortunately, for the, <laughs> for the 350. Yes, indeed. Maybe you'll have such a celebration. Uh, Michael O'Leary, the famous, famous uh, founder and CEO of Ryanair, the largest company in Europe and the second largest in the world, I think. Uh, after Southwest. I'm going to say it because I know somebody else is going to say it if we don't say it. He wasn't the founder. Oh, it's true. You're right. No, yeah. Because yeah, I know we're going to get right. tweets. You're right. Oh, God damn it. You see? But he might as well have been, quite No, frankly. but you, you see the power of the brand and the myth. You you recreate the story around something, and yeah, even yeah. I make the mistake. He might as well have been. Yeah, true. But no, no but that's, that's important, actually. You're absolutely right. He loves uh, horse betting, and there was this uh, the Grand National, which is a very famous horse race in our region. 
there was this uh, horse called Tiger Roll who won, you know, for the second time. And it almost never happens. I think it was the second time ever or something. Anyway, I'm, I'm not into horse betting, so I don't know anything about it. But to celebrate that, he flew back from Liverpool to Dublin on Ryanair. Obviously, why would he fly anything else? <laughs> he said... Um, to the entire aircraft. I got some criticism last year by limiting the drinks to one drink per person so that the crew could get to the end of the aircraft. But today you can have two drinks per person on me. He adds, if anyone orders cheese panini or a sandwich, I'm offloading you personally. You can buy your food when you arrive in Dublin. On board this flight, we're drinking. (laughs) (laughs) Well, for for, he's a divisive character for sure, but he is a character. Uh, uh, Yeah, exactly. But then I'm sure that people flying from Liverpool to Dublin were very happy to have an extra drink and to be drinking with uh, the CEO, uh, no, the founder of uh, Ryanair. Fun story. (laughs) Talking about drinks, the... (laughs) There was this uh, flight attendant, a lady working for American Airlines. <laughs> she she had a tray, like you do, like I think eight to ten drinks on it. And you know what happens sometimes at these pre-flight drinks when people are still kind of boarding, put their stuff or whatever. She was just behind a passenger. The passenger just make a sudden movement and the tray goes in the air and all over the place. And on who does all the drinks and the Coke and whatever lands on the CEO of an American airline. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Duke Parker, she was mortified. She said she wanted to hide, drop dead. Was I still employed? <laughs> but he was so cool. He came back. He talked. He took a selfie with her. So that's what she put it on Instagram. And uh, when he, he got off the flight, he told her, I'll never forget you. And she adds, I guess it's a good thing, right? <laughs> she had never spilled a drink in her, I think, 10 years, whatever career. Of course, the date happens. He's just on your CEO. I'm so glad to hear that he took it so well. That's that's a sign of a good leadership. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I didn't hear that story. That's nice. I really had a CEO's because I really worked in corporates, but twice in my life. And I I don't know what I would have done if I had met my CEO by spilling some, you know, Jack and Coke on him or her. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, honestly, wow. Oh, well. Um, <laughs> so... We talked about doors or half doors. Uh, JetBlue has a door on Mint, and we might be able to try that to London soon then. Finally, the worst kept secret in the industry. It's flying to London. Yeah, it's great. It's great news. I'm very excited about this. It's not going to happen for two yeah. years, which a lot of people, uh, including some, many of my friends who are in the business, are like, what? What are you doing? Uh, <laughs> announcing it so long, but I think that there's th- there's regulatory filings that would have um, let the cat out of the bag. Uh, anyway, it's great. I think uh, they're using A321 LRs, which they are expecting to arrive well in in the in the intervening 23 months. <laughs> it's great. I think it's not going to be easy for them. Virgin and Delta have already started throwing capacity at Boston to London as will the American and BA joint venture. But unlike a lot of other airlines that have tried this as new players, they are a 20-year-old company and they are established and profitable and financially secure. And they have a lot deeper pockets to weather a storm. So they won't be able, they won't succumb to the common tactic of being bled to death by the majors. But it won't be easy for them to compete on this or to last. Yeah, it won't be. I think the announcements early might also be, uh, for we know that because of Flybee's demise, 
there are some slots available at uh, Ethro that will have to be reallocated or bid upon whatever. So they will have to be, because they need slots somewhere, so they will have to had to say that we need the slots, right? And they, I don't think they would have been able to hide it. So I think they just went ahead and said, you know, we're going to do it. So nobody's surprised if they start, you know, going for these slots. By the way, these slots could actually be attributed to BA. You never know, or Virgin, actually. So <laughs> you yeah. never... Which, interestingly, actually, I, I thought about something. Yeah, they have the, the 321 LRs, which is the most probable uh, aircraft they would fly. But they also have ordered 220s, 300s. 220s the 300s can fly over the Atlantic and, and that's the most interesting thing, could land at Lucy. So if they were to go for that plan, but it's pure speculation from my part, I don't know anything, guys, but that would be absolutely fantastic because BA does flight 001 to New York, but that's pretty much it. And BA stops in Shannon because they have to refuel with the, the 319. The 220... 300, you could do direct Lucy, New York, Lucy, Boston, without refueling, with a great product, with a great aircraft, and a differentiated offering that flying from, from Heathrow, that could be something, I, I have no idea, maybe that's not even their plans, but that could be something fantastic. Well, they're, they've said out loud that they're going to use the 321LR on the London, because the, apparently London is the first, so they may do Amsterdam and Paris yep. and others, but... But you're right, they, they could also augment it. I know that they've got a pretty strong strategy for the the 220. That would be great. City to, to New York and Boston would be such a joy, Would be especially on JetBlue. Yeah, exactly. Are such a, they have such a good product, and I think it would really put pressure on the other on the other airlines if, if, they're, if they're using similar pricing. So they'll have Mint, which I've talked about ad nauseum yeah. as a great product, but even in economy, it's great. They're going to have their fast broadband. They're going to have their great IFE and, and just general service attitude. So I, I'm I'm very excited about this. Who knows? Maybe they'll, because they have not announced what airport no, they're going to be nothing. serving in the UK. So maybe if things go faster, that they will they will launch faster, which would be which would be fantastic. Yeah, they, yeah, because they're receiving the 321s very soon. The, the 220-300s, I just mentioned, next year, they ordered uh, 60 of them. I don't know. Again, I, I, maybe it's just a pure wet dream of me, but that would be something really, really, really <laughs> fantastic to have them without the stop in, in, in Shannon. That would that would be something that could be very competitive. But again, uh, uh, maybe I'm just completely dreaming here. It's true that, you know, because they're not part of these big alliances, you know, BAA on, on, on one side and, and Virgin Delta on the other are like so massive and they have lounges and they have like these full express... JetBlue at Heathrow doesn't have a lounge. You would have to invest so much money to make the experience. I wish them well because we need competition. There's not a lot of... I mean, we've seen, of course, there, there were different uh, propositions, but we're, we're seeing the WOW disappearing and Premier Air disappearing and all the guys that are trying to do... Like you said at, at the beginning of your comment, these guys are an experienced airline, but it's difficult. There's a lot of pressure, and I'm sure, like you said, that the, the big ones will not go without a fight. So it's... Uh, because what else do we have to, to fly? We can go, what, SAS via Copenhagen or, you know, you have a TAP to via, um, via I mean. The well, that's the thing. I think that that's their probably rationale is that London to New York is actually, in terms of choice, 
not very well I served. Agree. You ha- you you have BANAA and then you have Norwegian. Yeah, sorry, I forgot. Obviously, Norwegian. But again, I mean, maybe they're looking at Norwegian, going, they're not long for this world. <laughs> so really, then you have two. You know, you go, well. I suppose United fly it as well, but um, yeah. But you know what, United. That, you, that's interesting because under pressure, you just mentioned United. Actually, I think did we mention that in the last episode? I think one of our listeners put that comment. They are putting their newer business and premium economy to London now. The seats. So, yeah, so they, and actually, I'm I'm talking out of my butt because of course Delta and Virgin fly those routes too. But yeah, and Delta um, put out a press release the day after JetBlue announced it by saying, oh, look at our great lounges, like basically hinting like JetBlue doesn't have any of this, so you should stick with us. <laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, there will prove to be a thorn in their sides. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, I'm looking forward to this. I'm Me too. For, and I've never flown JetBlue, so I really need to. And I don't know when I'm going back to the US uh, before at least fall, so I don't have any, like you possibility so i think you've decided since we're talking to united to fly united for one of your internal flights in the u.s right yeah i'm doing san francisco boston on united i booked it so that will be very interesting on a 757 so we'll see we'll see how it is as long as i can sleep i kind of don't care (laughs) and i haven't booked my return leg I'm, i'm giving that a little bit more time there aren't really many options for a premium product across on that route jfk Loads, yeah. but Boston, not okay. so much. Okay. Uh, since we just mentioned the 321 LRs, happy to learn that uh, the 321, I think 320 as well, so the entire series, will now have the airspace products. You guys might remember I was even invited at their launch here in London. It's basically the whole LEDs and the new fancy overhead bins when you can actually put your luggage, uh, you know, like vertically, not horizontally, so there's more space. So that on a 321LR transatlantic would be great to have like even more space, better lightning, better the whole thing, whatever. So that's that's a, that's good news that uh, Airbus is putting that. I think they will, over time, put that to all their products. It's a good, it's a yeah, good it's, product. It's a good thing. For those who have never flown the... Um, the XCS1 or CS3 series, so 220, 100, and 300. Another chance to do that, Air Baltic is wet leasing some of its aircraft to Lufthansa. So you can fly Munich Bucharest, Munich Lyon, Munich to Luxembourg, and Munich to Budapest, and you'll be in an Air Baltic to 2300. And nothing from Frankfurt, actually. So avoid Frankfurt. One more uh, reason to avoid Frankfurt. Yeah. So. Like you need anymore. <laughs> So we have to go there. We didn't want to avoid it. The follow-up to the the saga of the 737 uh, Max. Uh, so much to say. Well, uh, first, uh, Ethiopian came out with their preliminary report and said, well, the pilots had a training and they followed procedure. There was a video uploaded by 737 pilots on a simulator with the data that they had. It's not the full extent. And they were not able to recover their flight with the similar conditions that happened on Ethiopian. That was very reminiscent of the final scenes of Sully. If you have seen the movie, you have now seen it. And there was also the story of uh, a pilot. We don't know of which airline. A lot of people say it's Southwest. Not comfortable about flying the Max product with only one, two hours on an iPad. And when he said that he wasn't, he requested to have a flight trainer with him. That was not to happen. And then... He was told to not fly that day and uh, given a no-show, which is very bad for his career. 
In the end, it led to basically Boeing admitted fault because uh, very unprecedented, the CEO of Boeing came and did a, a video actually and said, well, we're very sorry. The chain of events, because it is a chain of events, and I think we'll start with that. The chain of events, we had uh, something to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, there's a lot that keeps trickling out. Yeah. At, well, maybe not trickling, but a lot that's coming out every day. And I, I said this to you just before we started recording that it's looking more and more like that it was a combination yeah. of events, events yeah. compounded by a quirky piece of software. Yeah. And I don't think the fault is going to lie particularly with anyone. Maybe, well, I mean, yeah, but predominantly Boeing. But it turns out that there was a there was a physically damaged angle of attack sensor that that's just come to light, and there was. Yeah, they say sorry to interrupt. They there are even uh, some reports saying it could have been a burst strike. Yeah, there was no more angle of attack on the aircraft. And then also this. Uh, this, this idea that the, the pilots did something or, or didn't do something they should have or did do something they shouldn't have as well has come into play. I can't remember specifically what it was, but it was sort of a, you should have done this and you didn't, and that probably would have helped. But who knows? Again, like in the situation that's... Yeah, you can't second guess. Yeah, there was a very great article on visualapproach.io, which... Uh, took all the data that has been released and kind of tried to describe what the pilots were, the difficulties they were having in the, the flight deck. And that's fascinating. And especially at some point, you understand that basically all the systems were shouting at the same time. The yoke was clacking. The environment was super noisy, plus stressful. Plus, we said, you know, you remember, there was like no time to react. The report is very interesting because it shows one thing for sure. Again, you know, every accident is obviously, that's what the Boeing CEO said, or what just Alex said, it's a chain of events. It's not one single thing. It's not MCAST that crashed the plane. It's the angle of attack that wasn't there. But because the MCAST only relied on a single one that he was giving false reading, the system was not developed well so that the pilots could have an understanding of what was going on, then et cetera, et cetera, and leads to a lot of... And there, there might have been also pilot mistakes here because of all this. It's always a chain event. We cannot just pinpoint it. Every crash in history has always been like that. The interesting thing in the, the report is that a lot of people were kind of questioning before that is that the pilots actually followed the procedure that Boeing told the pilots to do in case of a problem with MCAS, they did actually switch MCAS off. So you could see during the, the minutia of these sad few minutes that they followed the official Boeing procedure. The, the thing you mentioned yourself about something they didn't follow was previously unrelated to MCAS, but that could have added to the accident itself. This is where it becomes all blurry. But for the pure MCAS thing, the procedure that Boeing gave was followed so when they removed MCAS, they were still trying to basically yoke it up and say, why is it not going up? But by that time, the pressure, the forces, the G-forces on the ailerons was so high that it was, the trim was impossible to move. They couldn't actually physically try to recover the plane, which leads to that very much unexplained situation where MCAS was reactivated just a few seconds before the crash. So there is obviously two things. Either MCAS has a mind of its own and decided to reactivate itself because it felt it was necessary, which would be very scary, obviously. I don't think that's the case, but you never know. That's one of the hypotheses. And the second hypothesis is simply that because, again, 
even without MCAS, they couldn't recover the flight because the very old procedure that didn't exist anymore in the 737 uh, manuals, there are some conditions when they are met, and those were met in this point where it becomes physically impossible to actually move the aircraft anymore. So maybe the pilots, because they were they're like, we cannot physically move the aircraft, they said, maybe if we put MCAS back on, that will ease up because the software will actually ease up the force and maybe we'll have another shot of recovering. And all that in a very few seconds. Whilst one of the pilots was actually going on the checklist, that's another thing that was written many, many times over and there's a many articles, many 737 pilots are coming out and saying, yeah, look, every new Boeing aircraft that is released now, every time there's something going on, on the screens in front of you, you suddenly have like a pop-up notification and it makes sure that you go through all the checklists that is mandated. But because the 737 was this old design and it didn't want people to recertify, well, there's no such thing. One of the flight deck crew, so the, the, the pilot, had to go open manually the book and look at what was the procedure to follow after having followed the initial thing that Boeing had laid out after the Lion Air crash. So it's, it's a, like you said, it's a, it's a mix of things. It's a no time, so much noise, misunderstanding of what's going on, potentially added errors that have been made that led to a catastrophic failure. It's, I, it's, it's my God. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think there's so much, like we said at the beginning, there's so much coming out. It does seem like there were a few procedures that were skipped that would have been in place if there had been any type of 737, like 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 you say, and that would it have saved them? Who knows? Yeah, who knows? Who knows? But again, I think it comes back to this whole, it's an extraordinary series of events that were made that created a very difficult situation that was amplified by this MCAS, this new MCAS software. And I don't think anybody in the world would have, as as the simulator trials have proven, would have been able to get out of this situation. Yeah. There was uh, this quote, I don't remember who said it. The question is whether these pilots should ever have been put in a position to require extreme piloting skill to return an aircraft safely to the ground. And that's probably the question, because maybe it was recoverable, we don't know. But what we're reading is that there was so much happening that probably, and again, this video was fascinating, I think sadly was put down, where pilots, trained pilots from, I think were European and US pilots, they tried to recover the aircraft with the data that has been you know, given to the public, now it's from the report, and they said we couldn't recover it. So it's not here to say you know, MCAS, like you rightfully said, but it said that there was so much stuff that probably it was almost impossible. It's <sighs> It keeps coming back into two camps, the Boeing bashing yeah. and the fact that these pilots were from a quote-unquote third yeah. world country, which both of them are, are nonsense. Announce, yeah. I, I, I just, I, I think it's a, a, it's a tragic event with, then there's not going to be one, oh, it's MCAS's fault. No. Oh, it's the new design's fault. Oh, it's the pilot's fault. I don't think it's going to be any of that. What's, I think the only silver lining is that they have, there's a lot of improvements in this. There will be recommendations on training. There'll be recommendations on CRM, procedures, checklists, all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think perhaps pilots on the 737 MAX 8 and 9 going forward will be cognizant of this. So if, if a situation like this, God forbid, ever arises again they'll have a sense of what to look at first. That's for sure. And we, I think we say that for every incident, as that's what the industry does best. 
it's very interesting to see that in the camp of because it was at the very like you said the very early days and that's why i was a bit angry you can hear that on my tone in the first episode we talked about that it was this kind of condescending tone about oh yeah it's ethiopia oh yes indonesia and yeah there's reason indonesia's track record is not great (laughs) let's be very honest yeah but it's interesting that now you have 737 pilots People that love Boeing criticizing Boeing. That's that's the thing. That's the most interesting because before it seemed to be like, oh, you're European, you like Airbus, and you dis Boeing, or you in the US you like Boeing, and of course we're the best, and all the other countries don't get it. You know, there was like, oh, you need good pilots, and you don't have them. Now the debate is a bit more sound, and yeah, I mean. There was this very interesting story, I think it was on Quartz, when you had Boeing engineers talking, and when Boeing decided to go with the MAX instead of going with a new aircraft, because again, of the pressure of the 320neo that just had appeared, the engineer says that we all roll our eyes. Here we go, the 737 again. (laughs) And uh, and, uh, it is a fascinating mix of, you know, the pressure of the industry to come up with an aircraft that is satisfied customers, to not retrain and... The reason, by the way, these pop-up notifications are make it's not pop-up notifications, that's on my phone, not on an aircraft, but... Pretty much, yeah, it's, it's pretty much... Uh, the reason they didn't put them on the Max and they went against them is because Boeing was afraid that if they were to put them, they would qualify as a new aircraft that would require requalification and they wanted to avoid that, so they decided against. To make a point about this story of an older aircraft versus a new aircraft, on all the new, like a Dreamliner Boeing planes, you turn a knob, you flip two switches, and the airplane goes on, and you basically like you turn the key in an engine on the 737 max it's the same procedure like 50 years ago which shut off at the cabin air conditioning you redirect the airflow you switch on the engine you start a flow of fuel you revert the airflow you turn back on the air conditioning and then you turn the generator and that's how you turn on a 737 which is saying that you know they didn't want to touch this whole thing because they didn't want to requalify but is that still something that we do nowadays to hey hey and I'm not criticizing here Boeing because at the same time, one of the best thing about the 737 is that because of its low profile, it's, and it's probably also why maybe Ryanair, but especially in emerging countries, you can load the aircraft without a lot of the equipment that modern airports have because it's just right there. You can basically throw the luggages in, right? You can, none of it's true. If you look at how our 737s are used in emerging countries, it's a very sturdy and great aircraft for that because you don't really need also like big stairs. Basically, it's right there. Yeah. <laughs> so it's true. a very potent aircraft for, so uh, meaning here, I'm defending Boeing not to try not to redo an entire aircraft because it's for many environments it's a great aircraft to be to be having not maybe for Heathrow but for other lesser airports let's say it's it's fantastic it's super sturdy so yeah it's complicated that's exactly what it is and I don't think we're going to hear the end of this for a long time we won't they had no new orders of them in March Obviously, they don't have because a lot of the, uh, I think there was a big Chinese lecture that said we're going to hold on, you know, our orders and everything. The point here is that for aircraft manufacturers, deliveries that they're not making are very important because that's when they make the money. So no orders means less deliveries down the line, no deliveries because the aircraft is grounded. That's a big problem financially for Boeing because they're not... Yes, and they're going to put a lot, have a lot of pressure put on them. They've reduced the pace by, I think, by 20%. I mean, they have no choice. They're not going to run out of money because I see some people online say, oh, they're going to go bankrupt. That's not, you know, whatever. Mm -mm. A shareholder sued a company for basically saying, you know, Boeing has been lying to us. They knew from the start that there was like 
cutting corners and they wanted to push the stock up and sell these aircraft super fast. And it's going to be a long untangling before it gets better. It will be very interesting to see if they can prove that. The major point is that Boeing CEO came saying, we're sorry, mentioned the MCAS in it, which is something that is, I think it's good that they didn't shy away because it's almost saying we're guilty. It was very straightforward, I found. Yeah, it was, and probably a necessary step at this point. Other groups actually suffering from that. I think um, TUI, you know, the the travel group, they were expecting, I think, eight or 10 maxes. Of course, they're not getting them. And uh, between securing alternative aircrafts, paying the fuel for aircrafts that are less fuel efficient, et cetera, et cetera, that could cost them up to 300 million euros. They haven't said, like Norwegian, that they will actually send a bill to Boeing, but that's an additional layer of... You have all these airlines that... I know we said last episode that American Airlines is canceling a lot of flights. Other airlines are doing that. It's an issue for a lot of people, actually, that counted. It is. It's put a lot of expansion plans, and especially at the busy summer period. Um, I think the numbers are probably posturing to to get some kind of negotiating leverage in there, but it's, it's going to cost Boeing and the airlines a lot yeah. of money. Finish with a quote. I found it not funny. It's not the right term. And people are going to bash me for using it, but I like it. It's Bill Maher. I don't know if you watch this, but mm. does pure unbridled capitalism work? Well, I guess that depends whether you're on the board of Boeing or on board of Boeing. Mm-hmm. Ouch. Ouch. Uh, anyways, so same transition as in the last episode, <laughs> going from 737 to Jet Airways. Ouch. Yeah, they are falling apart. In fact, when we were in Delhi filming, I offered to fly a friend of mine up, who's a food journalist, and actually he was in our Mumbai episode, to join us and just help introduce us to some some wonderful food. And he preferred to be booked on jet because he was a frequent flyer with them, so I did. And then we both got a notification saying that his Mumbai-Delhi flight was canceled. Oh. And uh, I thought, okay, well... I'm going to book you a backup flight on Vistara just in case. And I did. And then his return flight was canceled too. And now, as of yesterday, they've canceled all international flights. They only stay for two days because they have no more money to pay for them. But I mean, come on. That's that's it. it. They're done. They only have about 12 airplanes now. They're six months behind on lease payments for airplanes. And more damagingly, they're six months behind on paying some staff, of their staff. Maintenance crew, pilots. Yeah, it's a disaster. They furloughed all expat pilots until at least September. Well, now indefinitely, but they did until September when I was in India. The newspapers, the national newspapers, oh, it was all front page news about how this was just a long time coming and that it was uh, just a disaster. They're a billion US dollars in debt. Yeah, 1.2. And yeah. they've put together this request for investment and no one's touching it. No, actually, they had like some interest, but the founder resigned. And I think it was a good sign because the founder had like some. He went to a meeting trying to save the company like a few weeks ago with the Lessers and got so angry, like hitting his fists on tables, that the Lessers actually got physically scared. They were like, if he's not going, we're not touching this airline. So he left. And usually he's a kind of jovial person. I think it was really stressed. And now they got interest, but I'm not sure. I actually even read that Eddie had his back into... Uh, it doesn't make any sense to me. But you know what? One thing that you might have also heard when you were in India, what I didn't realize, is that there is um, yesterday, tomorrow, when is it? The elections are going on. And yes. the prime minister, Modi, 
doesn't want to have Chad Airways going bankrupt because that would be a sign that his economy is not going well. So Watch. there's probably a lot of pressure in the background as well to keep it going. The thing is, you said 12 aircraft. I think there's a regulation in India that says if you don't have 10 aircraft flying internationally, you cannot qualify as an international airline. I mean, it's gone, basically. I don't know why they're even trying. Yeah, they're the biggest private airline in India. And it's just sad. I think it's ridiculous in a way. Yeah. But this has been brewing yeah, yeah. for... Oh, two, yeah. three Yeah, years? we've been talking on and off about that all the time, yeah. I think even two, three days ago, Indian Oil decided to suspend their kerosene delivery. <laughs> I mean, Oof. they're, they're, they're done. done. I mean, That's I don't it. understand exactly. So maybe now that the election is going now, I think maybe it's today and when it's done, then, you know. But it's 23,000 jobs. It's really sad, man. And that's that's the worst yeah. part. Yeah, to me too. Wow. Anyway, so you didn't fly Jet Airways to go to India. How did you fly? Etihad. How was that? They were great. They were really good. I, I'm I'm impressed. And I, I had a pretty interesting experience with them because I was booked in economy the whole way. And I had been tinkering with, inspired by you because you've done it in the past, with their <laughs> bidding system. Oh, yeah. Because we were doing four legs, of course, London, Abu Dhabi, Abu Dhabi, Delhi, and then back again. The London Abu Dhabi lab, like the minimum bid was like 900 pounds. Forget yeah. it. That's three times more than the entire ticket. <laughs> so I just said, forget it. But the but the other ones were, were pretty good. So I bid on the Abu Dhabi Delhi leg because I knew I was going to want to sleep because you get into Abu Dhabi at about 1.30 in the morning and we were just going to hit the ground running when we arrived in Delhi at 7 a.m. or whatever it was. So I tried and I was successful. But the flight from London to Abu Dhabi in economy was great. And sitting in the very front of the bottom deck of the A380 in economy, you really appreciate how bloody huge that airplane <laughs> is. Because you've got an unobstructed view. There's no yep. bulkhead in yep. front of you all the way through. And then, you, well, of course, you've got the stairs sort of in, in the middle of the cabin. Greg was in row... I don't think it is row one, but let's call it yeah. row one. It's first yeah. row. So he had all this leg room. I was in row four, which was a sort of extra leg room seat. Tons of room. I had a seat free next awesome. to me and it was absolutely fine. The food was pretty good. Actually, the food was fine, really. The service was outstanding. Oh, wow. I'm actually, happy to in, hear in that. economy. There was a chap behind me who was a sort of middle aged chap with his wife. He wasn't a big fan of flying. And every single time the cabin crew member walked past him or was providing a service, she made a joke with him. That's uh, cool. And just checked in how he, uh, yeah. And he wasn't like super nervous. Yeah. It was just like, this wasn't his favorite thing in the whole wide world. The IFE is outstanding, I think. Very, very rich content. I think they have five channels of live TV, which is the most I've ever experienced on an international airline. Those three wonderful high def cameras. Good Wi-Fi, reasonably priced, not as good as Emirates, I don't think, but but just a great experience all in all for an economy flight. I would happily fly them again in economy, just like Emirates, I would. Arriving in Abu Dhabi, it was sort of half past one, transiting through Abu Dhabi, and we've both talked about how Abu Dhabi is very, very tired, <laughs> is a joy. It was so easy. Besides the fact that it's old... You know, you can do a layover in 15 minutes and make your flight. Yeah, it's absolutely no problem whatsoever. Everybody was very friendly, you know, and it was still very busy, even though it was in the middle of the night, because it doesn't sleep, that airport. What I did notice on landing is that the new terminal is done. All the lights were on. Wow. 
It's not being used, obviously, but it might as well have been. I don't know what they're waiting for. Yeah, maybe there's some internal work to be finished because I think the opening date is December, by the end of this year. Yeah, it was completely done. Yeah, Abu Dhabi is a tired airport, but it looked completely done. So that's very exciting. That's great news. And you, you transit through easily. And then we were on a bus out to the airplane, but they do business class in a separate bus, which is great, I guess. We got on board and it was an A321, which was uh, a new one for me. I'd never flown on a small aircraft on one of the Middle Eastern airlines. I was in row one, very comfortable, lazy boy type oh, yeah. seat. Okay. A manager kid on the seat menu. I had no intention of eating because I just wanted to sleep as much as I could. Again, very similar IFE. Was there a camera? I don't can't remember to be completely honest with you. I don't think there was. Again, outstanding service. We were very, very delayed leaving because of, you know, it was the end of the day. These planes run the short hops. So it was late arriving, but we did sit on the ground for quite a long time. And the delay was compounded by the fact that if you are flying to or from India, you cannot fly Pakistan. Over Pakistan. Yeah, the, the airspace is currently closed. Still closed. If you're going from anywhere to anywhere else, I not to. I'm not India, even sure because Emirates fly over it all the time. Yeah, because I was looking at a flight radar 24, and there's actually very few airlines that do it. So maybe Emirates is one, but actually, I've seen most of them actually rerouting. Also because, you know, there's been flare-ups in the borders. So they also want maybe for to make sure they <laughs> don't happen to Yeah, me. certainly not everybody is. But it means that you have to... When I said I didn't want to eat, when the, when the flight attendant was coming by taking orders while we're on the ground because they had time, she said, uh, or what would you like to eat? I said, no, nah, I just want to sleep. She's like, are you sure it's a really long flight? And she said it was four hours compared to the two and a half it normally is. And basically what you do is you leave Abu Dhabi and you fly directly to Mumbai. And then as soon as you get to Mumbai, you almost fly directly north. So it adds a long way over because obviously Delhi is much further north. It's a little bit frustrating, but it meant that I got to sleep for a little bit longer. (laughs) Um, But again, I can't reinforce how, how good the... I'm happy that you've, you've done that because uh, probably the seats were the same. I can't recall. I said in the last episode, but uh, it was a 320 series. A 321, I can't remember, but that was like 10 years ago. And it was exactly the same type of seat. I'm looking at it now on, online. These seats are comfortable. Very comfortable and nice recline. Because I was in the front row, you have the IFE come out of the armrest, but there was a screen in front of us with a moving map. As soon as we were airborne and the seats went off, I was I was asleep, even though it was super bumpy. I was just I was just so tired. But yeah, I mean, I would happily fly on that again. And the way back, how was experience? Good, yeah, really good. I I I was upgraded, uh, which was wonderful the whole way home. Yeah, because I was on a different flight than Greg uh, leaving Delhi. I had to leave at 4.45 a.m., which actually ended up being like nearly 6.30 a.m. because of the same reason. But they're not adjusting the schedules, as I later found out, having talked to the pilot, because they never know when this this airspace restriction will be lifted. And filing new schedules is a very laborious affair, and they would lose slots and everything. So they just have to – they warn everybody on the ground. It was fine. It really didn't make a, a lick of difference for me. But it was a Dreamliner, uh-huh. which had the backwards-facing seats. Yeah, so the studio. These are very good seats. The, the, yeah, the, yeah. It's a very good yeah, seat, yeah. which I'd experienced on my Paris Abu Dhabi yes. leg. But it's the backwards-facing seat with the cameras. And I tell you what. It's jarring, right? Again, amazing service. I didn't eat, again, because I wanted yeah. to sleep. With BA, I never really think about it because they don't have the cameras to compound <laughs> it. But I kind of, I woke up and 
<laughs> I, lo- I looked at the camera, which I had just running on the IFE, and then I look out the window and I'm like, we're not moving. What's happening? Like, your brain is like... Right, yeah. Yeah, going for, it took me like 15 seconds to go, we're not moving. And then, of course, your body is feeling the inertia. <laughs> Uh, and you're like your brain's like what is happening it's the same uh, because on one of my legs to uh, australia i was backward facing on one and exactly that you you said wonderfully much better could have ever said it yeah (laughs) but again uh, consistently a really strong product a really strong product really strong service and then I had, I was supposed to have seven and a bit hours in Abu Dhabi, and I was planning on leaving and going into town. Oh, but then you had less. But by the time yeah. I got there, I had just under five. Okay. And so what did you do? Well, it's not a great airport <laughs> for, for a long let. The lounge is the lounge is good. It's the business quiet. Business lounge from Etihad, right? The business lounge is not too Etihad, bad. And I had the opportunity to try another, but it's comfortable. The food is, it's all buffet food, but it's good. It's fresh. There was fast Wi-Fi, comfortable seats. So I, you know, I had to wander around. I had a shower and all of that. But by the time our flight was called, I was ready to go. Uh, <laughs> and so what was it? It, it was an 830 ah. on the way back. Weird, 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 slight weird quirk. You're called in and they say, business class, okay, go all the way through. And there's a, a pen behind the final document check where you sat. Except I was the only person sat there. And I said to Greg, like, something wonderful or terrible is about to happen. I boarded. I was in a um, middle yep. seat. Again, amazing food, amazing service, just a really positive experience. Great Wi-Fi, awesome. great movies, uh, all of that. I had a lovely person sitting next to me uh, who I had a long conversation with, uh, an English chap, but who'd been living in Abu Dhabi for, for 10 years now. Uh, just, just a great experience. I was so impressed. I wish Etihad were in an alliance that meant Man, you're reading my mind. That was exactly my next sentence. It's a great... And the only thing... Uh, I don't drink at the moment, so it was completely inconsequential to me. The wine list was nothing to write home about compared to Emirates or even BA, but... Other than that, I really can't fault the experience. Uh, you know what? I will never make a decision of flying an airline because of their choice of drinks anyway. You know, I'd like to have a Maybe good seat to sleep. That's pretty much it, honestly. So, you know, you, you guys listeners, you know, we like to talk sometimes about wine and food or whatever. This will never be, at least for me, and I'm sure for you, my primary decision ever. I don't care. I mean, I'm happy when yeah. there's great one because I'm like, oh, I'm never having that at home anyway, so I'm going to try it, but I don't care. Yeah, it really doesn't bother me. It's just one of those things when you're like, because I look at the menus yeah. and I look at the, the amenity kit just to see what it's like. And I thought it was like, would I break my fast <laughs> for this? You know, no, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have. <laughs> okay, so how about Delhi then? You know, they claim to be voted the best airport in the world. I mean, there are 59 on that list I gave you at the start of the show. 59. (laughs) I can assure you, it is not. (laughs) Is it terrible? Uh, No. Is it great? No, (laughs) it's not. I stayed out by the airport. We both did. um, There's this cluster of hotels and offices and shops called Delhi Aero City. Uh, CBD, yeah. It's it's about a kilometer away from the airport itself. Brand new. Brand new. It felt like being in Dubai. It was like nothing... Yeah, these new business districts that you see in a lot of emerging countries, they're popping up. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. It was exactly like that. It was all... like Some of the places hadn't even opened it. It was so new. There's a cluster of restaurants. We had a very nice meal. Airbus are based there, Ernst & Young, a few others. 
and all of the big hotels, like literally in this compound. Uh, and it was yeah, very comfortable. The Aloft Hotel was was. was oh, you great went to the Aloft. Taxi. Oh, that's a, yeah, I stayed I at love, the Aloft. I love these there. little and, hotels. They're pretty cool, actually. But yeah, but I said yeah, doesn't it answer my good. question about the airport. <laughs> You're trying to, ev- you, you're, uh, yeah. you're, you're evading, so I got you're to evading the, the question here. Not kidding you. So I took a, I took a taxi uh, or hotel car out to the airport and I got there at maybe 1.30, which is a busy time of day for that airport. And it was heaving. You go through layers of security check as you do in many Indian airports. Got to the uh, Etihad check-in desk. Again, very friendly, not Etihad employees. Security was actually pretty easy. Okay. Uh, you go through priority security. It was fine. Took no longer than any other airport I've ever been to, other than having to take out all your cables. Yeah, I remember that. And it was fine. I, I, I was through in no, in no time. Etihad used a Plaza Premium Lounge, two Plaza Premium Lounges, which were crap. They were absolutely <laughs> heaving. There was nowhere to sit down. I was exhausted. I hadn't slept all night. Oh, my God. Nowhere to sit down. Terrible food. Just not not good at all. Eventually, some of the, I think, KLM and one of the American airlines. Was it an American airline? Yeah, probably left. And there was a little bit more space. But by that time, like, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> you go into these, like, pens almost to board yep. the flight. And they were prompt-ish with boarding. You go down a completely separate jetway to on, in business class not even just like you all go down the same one and then split oh, yeah, at the, okay, at okay, the okay. door you actually go down a complete almost like a separate okay. gate like 51a and 51b yeah. for business class and again this was on a dreamliner the gate checking staff very friendly very efficient so yeah I, that that I, that airport is not as good as they think it would i should caveat by saying i experienced one terminal yeah yeah so so who knows? By the way, the to caveat that like. applies to pretty much all of the airports. We don't claim to be experts on all the airports we're talking about. Yeah, wow. Okay, wow. To be frank, it's um, I could have said the same thing, and I don't remember what we said about it. Uh, Mumbai, there's um, yeah, they should have a upgrade program. Let's put it that way. I agree. I mean, I was expecting better. Again, I think maybe the domestic terminals, the one that's received the most attention. But I, I, jeez, it was um. <laughs> Yeah, and I thought maybe I was just tired and in a bad mood, but then Greg came through and was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> "Okay, so let's not dwell on that." So, would you do a layover there? No. <laughs> so, uh, what are your next flights, man? I'm going to Austria with my family to uh, not tomorrow, the next day. Sunday. Oh, Austria? Where uh, in Vienna, yeah. Salzburg? Or? Uh, flying to Vienna, taking a few days there, and then the train to Innsbruck, and then flying out. Oh, Innsbruck. wow, that's. Sounds so, nice. Yeah. So we'll, that's one we'll talk yeah. about in the next episode. For me, probably Paris is not really uh, super far because I'm still limiting uh, travel. I'll explain that in the next episode because we're running out of time for this one. Alex has to go for a very simple reason, is uh, meeting me later tonight, actually. Yeah. <laughs> for some Japanese food. Looking forward exactly. to it. Exactly. So uh, see you next time, guys. Bye-bye. Safe travels.